For those of you who uh, have noticed, I do love sports. And as far back as I can remember, I've been involved in athletics from participation to coaching to my involvement with professional football, as Keith Berman says, in the National Football League, uh, also Major League Baseball. And uh, I love sports. Now, there are those of you who are out here that, you know, in fact, um, oh, I want to thank you, by the way. For those of you who don't know, about a month and a half ago, uh, Mary asked uh, if you'd like to participate in just writing a letter of, of appreciation or whatever. And uh, she got all those letters that you wrote and put them together in a book. And we had a chance this weekend to go through and read them. And Lynn and I uh, really appreciate the comments that you made. And uh, they will be a major source of encouragement in the future. And for those of you who don't know anything about it, it's because it was, uh, I guess, announced a week when I wasn't here. <laughs> so maybe you weren't either. But uh, anyway, it's really a nice book. And uh, if, you want, if, you, if you want to, um, we'll make it available to you. Uh, Linda's going to bring it in the next couple of Sundays or whatever, for those of you who haven't. Uh, yeah, thank you, too. Thank you for your, your note. Who did you get to write it for you? Um, uh, anyway, where was I? Um, oh, for those of you, because I, I did get a couple of comments on, you know, less, less sports stories, that type of thing. So, but <laughs> too bad. <laughs> <laughs> just, this isn't Burger King, you know, you ain't getting it your way. So it's just the way that it is. But anyway, uh, so back to uh, the fact, that, and, and here's why. Let me just explain to you why I love athletics, I love sports, because I believe that sports is a tremendous vehicle in teaching life's lessons. And uh, anybody that's been involved in sports knows that. Anybody that has children involved in sports understands that it's a great vehicle to be able to teach truth about life. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, sports teaches discipline. You know, to, uh, to lay aside immediate gratification for something in the future, a goal that you're working towards or, or something of that nature. Uh, sports also uh, involves determination, overcoming obstacles, whether it's uh, going through an injury or maybe even getting cut and rejection of not making a team if you're not very gifted at that point in time, to overcome those obstacles, to have determination in life, uh, the discipline that's involved in all that, hard work to accomplish goals. One of the things I love about uh, sports is that it involves uh, working together with people who are different than yourself. Uh, it's a tremendous bridge to gap uh, racial and economic differences. It's amazing to me the people that I know that have been involved in athletics all of their life tend to be a little more colorblind uh, when it comes to looking at the skin color of another human being uh, because, you know, that's not an issue. Uh, to be able to work with people that have different gifts and abilities that you do, understanding that where you're strong, they may be weak, and to work together as a team to do it. Uh, you know, from that standpoint, there's a lot of lessons that you can learn through sports, the lessons that you learn through failure, you know, to, just to be able to understand that you can make a mistake and you've got to get up and forget about it. Uh, we used to say in, in, the, in the National Football League that a defensive back had to have short-term memory, you know, because you, you, you couldn't get burned for a touchdown and then go out there and line up across Jerry Rice again, realizing what he just did to you the last time that you were there. I mean, you just crawl in a hole and die. You've got to forget about it and brush yourself off and get up and move on with life. And if you think about it, there's a lot of spiritual implications to everything that we're talking about. You know, in, in, all, those, in all of those things that you learn, one of my favorite phrases became over a period of time, and I've coached from T-ball all the way up through varsity high school level, and one of my favorite phrases uh, became one that I find myself uttering on many occasions, and that was, Hey, 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 wake up! Wake up! Oh, and you always had some kid somewhere that was just, you know, especially right fielders in baseball. They were the, they were the best. Because they were always like this. (laughs) 
And you'd be in the dugout going, hey, 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 ho, ho, hey, you. And then you'd yell their number so you didn't yell their name because their parents were always there. So, you know, that way it was pretty cool about it. But it was like, wake up. Would you wake up? Thank you. And then an inning later, you're yelling the same thing. The best was I, when I was coaching T-ball, that was the, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I was thinking. I have no idea. I know what I was thinking. What happened was I was driving by one day and listening to this guy yell and scream at these little kids. And I told my wife, I said, man, you know, I hope, I hope Ryan doesn't have a plan for some lunatic like that. And uh, she said, well, you know what? Then why don't you just coach? And I said, okay, then I will. That's, that's what I was thinking. Um, that's how that happened. But, but one day we were practicing and I turned around and I looked and we were doing a drill. And I turned around and looked and every kid was running around chasing rabbits in the outfield. Oh, these kids were like, going, hey, over here's another one. And they were running around like, hey, hey, hey. I was like, oh, man. You know, it, it, this whole idea. But the biggest reason I love sports, and this is the most important one of all, is that God loves sports. <laughs> he does. If you challenge that, now I want you to stop and think about it. He talks a lot about baseball in the Bible. In fact, he dedicates the first verse in the Bible to baseball. It says, in the big inning. That's right. And then he goes on and he talks about how Eve stole first, and then Adam stole second. <laughs> right? And Gideon rattled the pitchers, and, uh, and David had a put out of Goliath. Uh, and the best one was the prodigal son who made a home run. I mean, you know, so don't tell me that sports isn't the Bible, because it's all over the place. You just have to dig a little deeper than you're trying to dig. But seriously, I mean, the Bible talks a lot about, or at least God, maybe God doesn't love sports, but he uses sports to illustrate a lot of spiritual truth. You know, in, the, in 1 Corinthians 9.24, we read that we're supposed to run in a way that we'll win, and that we're to, to discipline ourselves, that we're to have a desire and determination to be the best at whatever we can be because it's the Lord God whom we serve, and that's Colossians chapter 3. To desire to be the best no matter what you do because it's God who you're serving have the discipline that it takes to refrain from certain activities to overcome obstacles in your life, to stay away from certain people, don't be deceived, you know, bad company corrupts good morals, to stay away from people that would, would uh, hinder you from accomplishing your goal, to uh, run with endurance the race that's set before us, to finish strong and have that determination, Hebrews chapter 12. And it says that to, uh, to keep looking, looking at Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, to focus on him. And anybody that's involved in athletics knows that focus is one of the most important things that you could ever do. Focus on a ball on a tee. Focus on a ball coming across the net. Focus on a ball being thrown to you from the pitcher. Focus on a ball that's hit to you by a hitter. I mean, focus is, is, is key in life. And the Bible says we're to focus on Jesus Christ, who's the author and the finisher of, of our faith. And to, and to have that type of focus. The Bible talks about unity in John chapter 17. And one thing that sports will do is it'll separate men from boys and the ladies from the girls. It'll separate and divide those who are willing to pay the price for the cause that they're involved in. And uh, the other thing it'll do is it'll unite those people who are committed. And what's interesting to me as I go through all this, you begin to realize that, you know, Jesus both unites and divides. You stop and think about it. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we're united into the family of God. That we're baptized into one family. For those who believe in his name, we become ch children of God. That we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, the Bible says. That God unites us as a family. He takes people from all different backgrounds and all, all different uh, experiences in life and he unites us and puts us together on his team. But also the Bible says that Jesus came not only to unite but also to divide. 
you know, if you read through the Bible, you're going to find several times where th- this phrase is used. And so there arose a division among them because of him. There arose a division among them because of him. When Jesus did things or said things and taught certain principles, the crowd was divided. There were some who were united on his team and those who were divided against him. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 10 for a second as we introduce what we're going to talk about this morning. But it's important to realize that Jesus comes not only to unite people, but also to divide people. And in Matthew chapter 10, we see probably one of the best examples of this truth. Matthew 10, while you're looking at that particular passage, you know, the Bible says that we're to fervently love one another. And the word for fervent is one that's used of a sprinter who's crossing or stretching across the finish line. And uh, I, saw, I saw something that I saw recently, I just shared, just, it's, it has nothing to do with anything, but it, it has something to do with, uh, with uh, Larry being an attorney. And uh, <laughs> what, what, I, what I saw was it had these guys, they're all in their suits and they all had briefcases and they're all lined up along a starting line like they're at a track meet. And they're all down there getting ready to go, and they had their suits on, they had their briefcases next to them. And then about 50 yards ahead of them was an ambulance. And, and, the, and the caption was this, an attorney's final exam. <laughs> so anyway, it's kind of keeping with the sports theme. Anyway, um, Matthew chapter 10, look at verse 32. Jesus says this, Every, Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be members of his own household. It says, He who loves me, he who loves, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. You notice what Jesus has to say. And any one of us, I'm sure, can testify to the truth of this. But if there's a point in your life where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... The Bible says that, you know what, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be united with the family of God, but oftentimes you'll be divided from your own natural or blood family. And, uh, you know, on the, on the uh, post-Thanksgiving events, I'm sure that many of you could say amen to this. And the reality of it is very simple, because God's greatest commandment is this, that you'd love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you'd put Him first above everybody else in your life. And the Bible says when you do that, guess what's going to happen? You will be divided from those who don't have that same goal in life. And Jesus said, I came that I would unite people, but I also came that I would divide people as well. And there's a price to be paid when we, when we put our faith and trust in Christ. And so as we look at this truth and we see what, what Jesus has to say, uh, this division among them, basically what he's trying to warn them of, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Because in this particular chapter, uh, and, and as we go through and complete it, really what he's saying is, you know, there are going to be those who, like the kid in right field, are just walking in their sleep. They're daydreaming, and God wants to yell out to you and me if we're in that position, that, hey, you know what, wake up, because he's got some important truths that he wants us to understand. 
in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he's going to contrast the difference between those who uh, believe in Christ and those who don't. He's going to contrast the difference between believers and unbelievers, basically, and he's going to, say, and he's going to show that there are you know, some very distinct differences. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we read this in verses 1 through 11. It says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. It says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. In this particular passage, he's going to give us four contrasts that I want to share with you between those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. And he makes it very simple so that we all understand it. But the first thing he says is this, that there's a difference between believers and unbelievers and that believers have knowledge and unbelievers are ignorant. The Bible says that now, brothers, uh, brother, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. And he says, we don't need to write to you because you already know very well that that day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The first thing that he points out to us is that God's people have knowledge that the rest of the world doesn't have. We've got knowledge that the rest of the world doesn't have access to. And we need to understand that, you know, it's just kind of like if you're on a team or have ever been involved in a team, the, the members of a team have access to information that those who are in opposition don't have access to. You know, one of the, one of the big things in, in the NFL was you get a playbook. And that playbook is basically the Bible of, quote, that particular organization. You have that playbook, you memorize it, you study it. Everything that that team will do is found in that playbook. And one of the first things they ask for when they catch you or, or, or they let you go or whatever is, hey, coach wants to see you, and bring your playbook because we want it back. We don't want the opposition to know what's in this book. And so we have access as God's people to information that the rest of the world doesn't understand nor do they appreciate. We have knowledge and they're ignorant of certain truth. And Jesus said this of us as friends. He said, you know what? Hey, I call you my friend. And the reason I call you my friend is because a friend doesn't keep secrets from his friend. I share with you all of God's plans. You know it from the beginning to the end. Everything that you need to know, God has given you and shared it with you. From the beginning, which is the book of Genesis, to the book of Revelation, which is the end of all things, God has shared everything that we need to know about God's plan for mankind. And it's a fascinating thing because I always talk to people that said, well, God's given me an additional revelation. He's given you an additional revelation to what? Everything that he wants us to know, it's in this book. He's given us the beginning and he's given us the ending. What did he miss? It's not like he left it on our own to try to figure out how it ends. What did he miss? He didn't miss anything. He's given us everything we need to know. He tells us how it all turns out. He tells us what to look forward to, what to expect, what to anticipate. We didn't miss anything. 
We have information that the rest of the world doesn't have. And Jesus said because we are friends of his, that he shared it with us. It's really interesting as we go through this because, you know, we've been, we've been told of the plan of God. And there's three phrases in here that I want you to take notice of because they're really important to understand it. The first phrase is this. He says, now, brothers, about times and dates. He's saying about times and dates. The phrase is found only three times in the Bible. This particular phrase, about times and dates. And it always refers to the nation of Israel. A specific plan that God has for the nation of Israel. Let me give you an example. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And we'll see what he's talking about because this is critical to our understanding of what he wants us to know. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Jesus gives this information and it's one of the few times that this phrase is used in the Bible. In Acts chapter 1 we read in verse 6. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said, he said to them, it is not for you know, to know times or epochs or times and dates which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, it's important, this particular uh, carryover between this idea and what we've been learning in 1 Thessalonians, because if you remember the last time we were together, what the Apostle Paul was saying to them was, hey, you know what? Jesus is either going to be coming for us if we have not died at his return, or he'll be coming with us if we have died and we've gone to be present with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so the angels said to the men of the, the, the disciples, said, hey, look, you know, you're standing there staring in the sky. Guess what? Jesus is going to come back just the way he left. And so we see the fulfillment of that in his coming for his people. But we also see an important thought that's being mentioned here, and that's this. The disciples were saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are now going to establish the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know of times and dates. But for you, while you're still here, you're to be busy doing the work of God, which is what? Being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, these are his last words here on earth, he's saying, hey, don't worry about times and dates and what God's got, in, got planned or in store. He's saying, you be busy. You be busy doing what? You be busy telling everybody that you know about God's love for them and that he sent Jesus Christ to die for them. And if they would believe in him, they would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the last words that Jesus said. Get busy telling people. Don't be worrying about times and dates. And so we have knowledge that, you know what, the world doesn't have, but we also are told while we're waiting for God's plan to come to fruition, we're to be busy doing what he's asked us to do. And so we look at this phrase, times and dates, he's saying that, hey, we have knowledge about this, and what he's talking about is very simple as this. For about times and dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord, that's the second phrase. He's saying the day of the Lord. What we need to understand and what he's talking about here is a very specific time in history, or actually in the future, when God will do a specific work here on earth that has never been done in the history of the world. 
Now, to understand this idea of day, and to understand this idea of a day of the Lord, we need to understand two things. Number one is the Bible talks about day as a 24-hour period. And in Genesis chapter um, 2, in verse 3, it talks about that this is a day, a 24-hour day. But also, then in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, it talks about, and this is the day of creation, which has to do an extended period of time, when God created the world. And so what he's saying here is there's a specific day that's coming that doesn't mean it's going to be 24 hours long, but an extended period of time in which God is going to do something on the face of the earth that he has never done in human history. And all of the prophets understood it, and they warned about this great day. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn back to the book of Zephaniah, if for nothing else, just to find it. And it's not in alphabetical order, so all I can help you with is it's on page 1404. It's Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. It's right in the middle there. But the prophets all warned of this great day, and these people understood it. The world at that time understood, and what Paul was saying was, hey, I don't need to write to you about this great day of the Lord because you already know all about it. That God is going to step in to human history and judge the world like it's never been judged before. And in Zephaniah chapter, um, chapter 1, look at verses 14 through 18. It's referred to as the great day of the Lord or the day of the Lord. It's also referred as a time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. It's also referred to as a time of the great tribulation in the book of Revelation in chapters 6 through 19. It's a great time of distress and trouble, a great time of judgment that will take place on the earth. And, and in Zephaniah we read, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and in gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry. Against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh will be like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. This great day of judgment. You know, what's fascinating to me is it says, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. These words were written 625 years before Christ. And here we are almost 2,500 years later, and God is still warning the world that judgment is coming. Now, what's fascinating to me as you think about it, because one of the things that's what's interesting as we go through this is that, you know, people are always talking about, you know, if God is a God of love. Hey, you know what? God is such a great God of love, and God is such a God of patience that he has been warning this world that judgment would come one day, that there'll be a time of judgment that this world has never seen. You know, what's fascinating to me is we don't talk too much about God's judgment anymore because, you know what, it just makes people feel uncomfortable. It's just not politically correct. Well, who are we to tell the world that God's going to judge them for their behavior? Well, you know, the last thing that God did, the last thing that Christ said before he left was, hey, you're to be my witnesses. Not only of God's great love, but let me tell you something that I have seen missing as far as our sharing with people around us, and that is we're also missing the fact that we need to warn them of the great judgment that's to come. That one day God will judge them for their sin. 
that God will judge them for their lifestyle. That God will judge them for their rebellion against God. God will judge them for their disobedience. There's a great day of judgment that's coming. And yet all we want to do is concentrate on the feel-good stuff. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Why don't you just add him to your life and that's all you really need and you'll have all the ingredients for a nice, happy life. You know what it is? That's not the gospel. The good news is that God has saved us from the wrath to come. That if we believe him. You know, the Bible is filled with people that were warned of the great judgment of God from the prophets all the way up through the New Testament. And they were warned of this great day of judgment. They were warned that one day they would pay the price for their sins. They were warned of a truth and reality of a place called hell where they'd be separated from God for all of eternity. And you know what their response was? What do I got to do to be saved from that? I don't want to go there. What do I got to do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's all they had to do. Why? Because it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. There's a great day that's coming to this earth that the world has never seen before. And we've got the knowledge of that and the rest of the world is ignorant of that. Times and seasons relate to Israel and the nation uh, and they don't even apply to the church. You know why this doesn't apply to us? Let me give you an example. Go back to 1 Thessalonians for a second. We are to warn the world of judgment. Why? Because it is the world whom God will judge. It is not those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. And the reason I say that is, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians for a second, you'll see that Paul, when he was talking about the day that Jesus would come back again, he included himself in the fact that, you know what? In verse uh, chapter 4, look at... Um, Verse 17. It says, Then we who are alive and shall remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, and thus we shall always be with them. You know, what's interesting to me is, you know, the Bible goes on to say this, the three phrases are time and dates, the second one is the day of the Lord, and look what it says, we'll come like a thief in the night. Jesus often warned that we're to stay awake, to stay alert, that like the right fielder, wake up! Hey, 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 would you wake up? That there is a day that's coming that will come like a thief in the night. Wake up. But what he's talking about is we're to warn the world around us to wake up. Wake up and see what God's saying is true. We don't need to be woken up. And the reason I say that is because we're not going to be here to experience the judgment. You know, the Apostle Paul said this, We who are alive will be caught up in the air. He believed in what's called the imminent return of Christ. He included himself among those people that at any time could be caught up with the Lord. There was no signs or dates or seasons that we need to be looking forward to. You don't need to be looking at dates and signs on the calendar. We don't need, you know, here's why I find Christians are caught up a lot of, Hey, what's going on in Israel right now? Oh, that's a sign. Or that, that's, that's an indication that the world is coming to a conclusion. Or, the, you know, the nation of Israel regathered in 1948. That's a sign. Or, hey, have they pulled the building permit yet on the temple in Jerusalem? That's a sign. You know, have they pulled it? You know, I got somebody working in the building department. Have they pulled the permit yet? You know, because when, when the Jerusalem, you know, when the temple's re rebuilt, that's when the Lord's coming back. Hey, listen to me. As a believer who's put your faith and trust in Christ, we're not to look for signs or dates. Why? We're not to look for signs because we're to be looking for a Savior. There are no signs and dates. Paul didn't say, I'm looking for signs and dates. He goes, I don't have any need to write to you about signs and dates or seasons. Why? Because we're not looking for those. We're looking for him. And we who are alive at the time will be caught up in the air with him. Why did he say that if he's looking for a time or a date or season? There is no time or date or season. He can come back at any time for his church. We need to recognize and understand that. See, we have knowledge that the world doesn't have. The world is ignorant of these things. 
And we need to recognize and understand that, that basically always trying to help us understand is we know things that the rest of the world doesn't know. And you know what? It's our responsibility to tell them about it. We need to warn them. Why? Because there's a sense of expectancy that we have. We know what to expect. They don't. They're going to be surprised by it. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 through 5. We read these words. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them. It says, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of light and the sons of day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. You see what he's saying? This period of history will come as a surprise to those on earth at the time, like the visit of a thief that's to a sleeping family. They're going to be caught off guard. They're not going to be aware of what's going on. And he's saying, God's people, we know what to expect. They don't know what to expect. Look what it says. He says they're going to be saying peace and safety. You know what's interesting is here's the way this is going to work out. Think about it for a moment. If you're still here, you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, and all the people around you that you know that call themselves Christians, that actually you'll find out at this particular day if they were or not, but if they believed in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we who are alive will be caught up in the air with him and be together with those whom he brings back who have died before us, right? Think about what this world's going to be like the day that Jesus comes back and all those who have put their faith and trust in him are translated or disappear off the face of the earth. I mean, basically, I, and I heard a youth group do this at camp one time, trying to shake up their counselor, but they had just had this message on when Jesus comes back and takes all believers to heaven with them. And uh, so what they did was they took all their clothes off and they just laid it in piles, just like, you know, like the Wicked Witch of the West that when she melted in the Wizard of Oz. And all the pile of clothes were just like that. Shoes were there, socks on top, pants, everything just fell right down. And they were just all like that all through the dorm. And the counselor came in to do bed check and checked and was like, And they had just had that message fresh in their mind. It was great. And he said, you know, I, I knew that it didn't happen, but it did kind of shake me up for a second. <laughs> but you stop and think about that for a second. What's the world going to be like the day that that happens? Think about what's going to happen to businesses. Think about what's going to happen to families, for example, that their whole family have come to put their faith and trust in Christ, and they're all gone. Their property, their businesses, their bank accounts. Uh, you know, think about, for example, when Jesus says he come to separate. There's going to be a day coming that family members are separated. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ, if he comes back, are going to be gone to be with him, and the rest of the family's not. And they're going to disappear, and they're going to remember what was shared with them about the fact that, hey, we're trying to tell you this is all true stuff. And it's based on historical evidence, not based on some lunatic like the people that were going to follow the, you know, the mothership behind the comet or whatever the heck that was all about. But, but it's like, hey, we're, this is based on a resurrected Savior. This is based on the historical reliability that Jesus rose from the dead. This isn't based on the whims or fantasy of some wacko. We need to understand that. Now think about what's going to happen. This world is going to be chaotic. And you know what's going to happen at that point? Someone's going to step on the world scene that's going to put it all back together. And they're going to relinquish power and control to this individual who's going to put it all back together. And you know what's going to happen? Hey, everything's going to be running smooth, man. It won't be long before we're all forgotten and things continue business as usual. And in fact, there are going to be a lot of people who benefit economically from it because they may end up with your property, they may end up with your bank account, they may end up with all kind of financial goodies because of it. And guess what? They're going to be going, man, peace and safety, things are going great. Everything's going to be wonderful. But you know what? They don't expect they're going to be caught by surprise because the Bible says, and then destruction will come on them suddenly. 
Everything's going great. What happened? The Bible says the day of the Lord for the first three and a half years, everything is going to be great. Peace and safety and the world is in harmony and we're all singing whatever they're going to be singing because they're not going to be singing Kumbaya. I don't know what they're going to be singing. We are the world. We are the people. Whatever it is. You know, and they're all going to be holding hands singing. And they're going to be loving every minute of it. But then at the three and a half year mark, there's going to be an abomination of desolation where this ruler says to the world, I want you to worship me as God. And then the wrath of God will be poured out on the face of the earth like it's never been poured out before. And the world will sit and they'll be watching and wondering and they'll say peace and safety and then bang, destruction will set in. And you know what it says? And as labor pains on a pregnant woman. You know what's amazing to me? Throughout the Bible, God often warns of impending judgment. Think about what he did in the days of Noah. Noah for 120 years preached, the Lord is going to judge this earth. Repent before God. And they watched him build an ark. And they said, yeah, well, what's he going to do? Said, hey, it's going to rain. And they went, what is rain? They never saw rain. Think about that. What's rain? It's going to rain. Yeah, right, okay. This lunatic said it's going to rain. For 120 years, he preached that message of repentance. You know how many people believed him? Eight his own family. They're the only ones that got in the ark. As soon as it started raining, I bet you had a whole bunch of people running around going, I think this is rain. They didn't listen. God warned Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah of impending judgment. Repent or you'll be destroyed. They didn't believe him either. God has often warned his people on this earth of judgment. You got a choice. And you know what? And the judgment that's going to happen during this period of time, this day of the Lord, is going to be like judgment the world's never seen. And you can share with them, and they're going to look at you and go, yeah, right. You're nuts. Hey, I'm as nuts as God is. And God has proven to be reliable and trustworthy, so I guess I'm not that nuts after all. But look what he's talking about. It'll come suddenly. It'll be discernible. How many of you have ever gone through a pregnancy? All right? Good, guys. I like that. Hey, we're in it together. You ever gone through one? Hey, if anybody's ever gone through one, this is the truth, right? Hey, you know you're pregnant. You got a pretty good idea of when you're due. You can go to the classes and they can warn you all they want about all the things you have to look forward to. Right? They do. They do the best they can. But the moment that you go into labor, it happens quick, doesn't it? I remember when our last child was born, Linda was in the shower and I was ready to leave for work and she said, you know what, I don't feel right. From that, I don't feel right to the time she gave birth was two hours. All right? We knew she was pregnant. We knew she was due. But as soon as those labor pains started, you couldn't stop it. With all modern medicine and all the rest of it, and I know there's some that can delay you know, the inevitable, but what God is saying is this. It's discernible. Like a storm off in the horizon, it's coming, it's going to hit, it's discernible. Like a tornado in the distance, or a hurricane in the distance, or some type of storm, or a volcano that's about to erupt, it's discernible. But the moment that it does happen, bang, it'll be a surprise to people. Whoa! This is true. We know what to expect. They're going to be surprised. And we need to recognize and understand that. The third thing he talks about is this. It says, so then let us be like others who are, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. The difference between being sober-minded and drunk. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. See what he says? There's a contrast between the world that we live in and those who are believers. We're to be sober-minded or we're to be alert, not to be like those who are drunk. Have you ever gone to a party or some type of function and you're the only ones that aren't drinking? You ever notice how stupid people are when they're drunk? Usually you never notice it because you were just as stupid as them. You didn't realize it. You know, you didn't realize how stupid it was to put a lampshade on your head or to try to dance. Uh, you didn't realize that. See, but what he's saying is, is that, you know, what he's saying is, hey, you know what? The world is like they're drunk and stupid. They don't even see the danger that's out there. And those who aren't drunk but are sober-minded and alert see the danger and what lies ahead. And he compares the believers to those who are sober-minded and alert to those in the world who are almost like they were drunk and just foolish. And they don't see the danger that's coming. They don't recognize how dangerous it's going to be. They don't understand any of it. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who aren't alert. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. They're of the darkness and we're of the day. There's the contrast again. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be, look what he says, self-control. You hear what he's saying? What are we supposed to be doing while we wait for the day that either he calls us home or he comes back for us? We're supposed to be self-controlled. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, joy, self-control. That we're supposed to control ourselves and do those things that are pleasing to God. Not to be like the rest of the world around us and living to please themselves because they don't see the impending danger ahead. We're to be self-controlled. We're to put on faith and love. Faith in Jesus Christ and love for those outside of us. We're to love those around us and we're to believe in God and trust His Word. Even though we haven't seen this come to fruition yet, we know that it's true because everything He said in the past that has come true has come true as He said. Therefore, we have no reason to doubt what He says about the future. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things yet not seen. We can believe God as to this day of wrath that's coming because everything He said so far has come true. We can believe that as well. To have faith in God and His Word. To have love for the brethren, one another. Says, and look, it says, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. To protect our thoughts. Hey, basically, salvation is threefold, just so that you understand. That, that salvation takes place at a moment in time. The hope of salvation has nothing to do with I hope that I'm saved, but it has to do with this. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, at that time, I was saved. Today, He continues to be at work in me and continues to move me forward in my relationship with God. And so my hope in salvation is that he, is, he who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Christ. And the last thing is this, the blessed hope of every believer is that one day, just as he is, we'll be like him. That he'll perfect us when we see him. Our salvation is threefold. It happens at a moment of time. You'll never be more saved than the moment that you invite Christ into your life. As you grow in your faith, you, the salvation is our hope. And as we look forward to the day when Christ comes, we're going to see him and we're going to be just like him. And so he says that, you know, we need to have the hope of salvation as a helmet to protect our head against thoughts that aren't true from the enemy that says, none of this is true. Don't be going around telling people about this because they're going to think you're nuts anyway. So why are you going to warn people about this judgment? This isn't true. Oh, yes, it is true because the word of God says it's true. And we need to understand and recognize it. And a fourth and final contrast is this, is that of salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. Look what he says. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are now doing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. There's a couple of things I want to share with you in closing that, that I think are really important that we get a good grasp of and understand. And that is, there are a lot of people who differ as to whether the church or God's people will go through this great day of wrath. And I want to share with you why I don't believe that we will. And it's going to be in the context of what we've already been studying so we can look at it and recognize it. But turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 for a second. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse 10. And then we'll compare it to verse 9 of chapter 5. And this is what we read. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, look what it says, who delivers us from what? From the wrath to come. There's a definite article that precedes wrath, what means a specific wrath that God is talking about. Now understand something. God's people have always gone through tribulation. Some of you may be going through a difficult time because of your faith in Christ. Although I doubt it's to the extreme that many people throughout the world have gone through when they were actually put to death or their possessions were taken from them or their property was taken from them or they were thrown in prison or whatever. But the reality is that God's people have always gone through, quote, tribulation. But the wrath to come is a specific wrath that God's already mentioned to us, and that is the specific wrath that will take place on this earth in that great day of the Lord. And so he says that Jesus will come to rescue us from the wrath to come. Well, that's a very strong indication that God's people will not go through that wrath that's to come. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, we see the same thing. He says, for God has what? Has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The nature of the church is such that, that God has, has saved His people the moment that Christ died on the cross. Our sins were forgiven, past, present, and future, if we believe in that sacrifice for our sins. And so there would be no reason to judge the church or to, to cause the church to go through wrath because Jesus experienced the wrath of God on the cross for us. So there's no reason that the church would go through it. The nature of the tribulation is such that God tells us that he's appointed it for the Gentiles or the nations of the world that God's going to judge them for their rebellion against, against God. Well, we haven't rebelled against God if we believed in Jesus Christ, so we won't go through that judgment. It's a great day of wrath for the people that are here on this earth. And as we go through this, the promise of Christ's eminent return is another strong argument, which I've already mentioned. That's this. Paul said that we who are alive will be caught up with him or raptured, caught up in the air, literally, with Christ when he comes back for his people. Well, you know what? If, if that's the case, we would know if we were here all the signs and dates. Because if it's three and a half years and then the abomination of desolation takes place, we would know what the three and a half year period is. The question is this, what kicks off the calendar? What kicks off the calendar is when the church is raptured or taken from this earth, it starts this, the day of the Lord, which is that seven year period. The first three and a half years, there's going to be peace and safety on the earth. But at the midpoint, abomination of desolation kicks in the last three and a half years where God will judge or pour his wrath out on the earth. Well, if the church was still here, duh, it wouldn't be that hard to figure out, hey, you know what, this is the day of the Lord of the great tribulation and here's the three and a half point when this guy stands up and says worship me as God and then the wrath of God pours place we would know how long it would last as well because it's going to end three and a half years later so the arguments are very simple and that says I don't believe that God's people are destined or appointed for the great day of the Lord that wrath that's to come but in the meantime there's a difference between those of us who are saved from this and those of us who will be judged by this and we need to recognize that our 
our purpose in being here is to warn people around us about this great day of judgment that will come. Think about how we're different from the people around us. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, God has given you knowledge through his word that the rest of this world does not have. They're in ignorance. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can expect things to happen in the future because what he said about the future in the past has taken place as well as what he says about the future that hasn't yet will also take place. We know what to expect. And so we know what to expect and that is that we're to be looking for a savior and that's the blessed hope of his coming. We're not going to be surprised like the rest of the world. We also are to be sober while we're here, meaning to be alert for that great day. And what that means is this. If I am sober-minded, then I am consciously aware that today, when I woke up today, that today could be a day when Jesus himself would come back. Now, let me explain to this in terms that I think we'll all understand. It should impact the decisions that you make today. Every decision that you make should be made in the light of the backdrop that today Jesus himself could come back for you if you've trusted in Christ. Now, what that means is, is that, you know what? It'll affect my decisions. It'll affect my thoughts about other people. It's kind of like this. Have you ever been in a classroom when you were a kid and the teacher left the room? Let me ask you something. What kid were you? There's only two. The one that was studying and doing their assignment. We called them the nerds. And there was the rest that were participating as that door closed, that teacher left, what happened? All hell broke loose. Stuff was getting thrown, people were getting, you know, teased. I mean, there was a whole bunch of pandemonium going on, right? Now, let me throw, maybe you don't recognize that scene. Maybe your scene was, your parents went away. And the, and the first warning is always this, how long are you going to be gone? <laughs> well, why do you want to know? Should it make any difference? Just curious, they say. Oh, okay. Um, When are you going to come back? Don't know. You ever see that commercial? The guy's sitting on a beach, and he calls his office, has a cell phone. Is that the greatest commercial? The guy's sitting on his beach, and he calls his office, and meanwhile, they're all partying, and they're dancing, and they got hats on and stuff. You know, the boss is on vacation. Boss is away, and mice will play, whatever it is. Cat's away, something or other. Somebody's away. And somebody's playing. But they're all dancing and stuff. And the guy picks up his phone. And he's on the, on the beach. He picks his cell phone up, calls the office. The guy answers the phone. He says, oh, man, you know what? Things aren't working out real well here. I'm going to have to cut my vacation short. I'll be, back in, I'll be back in as soon as I can get there. Guy hangs up the phone in the office. Everyone's scattering, man. They're cleaning up. They're throwing all the party stuff away. They're cleaning up the office. They're going back in and they're working. And then you see the waiter coming down on the beach, giving the guy another drink. And he goes, I love doing that. <laughs> Is that the greatest or what? I love that. I love these cell phones. These are great. But the whole point is this. You know, God, as, as God's people, we're not supposed to be in that crowd that's just out messing around, wasting time, pleasing ourselves. We're here to please God. Jesus could come back today. Would we be ashamed at his appearing? Or would he find us faithful in doing what he's called us to do? See, the eminent return of Christ isn't some doctrine that, that um, you know, doesn't apply to real life. It should affect the way we live 
just as a, a kid in the class expects his teacher to walk in at any minute, or a guy in an athletic field who's working out expects his coach to come back at any minute, or you know, kids at home whose parents gone out expect their parents to come back any minute. You know what? We shouldn't use this time that we're separated from God and physically separated as a time where we can just goof off and do what we want to do. We need to be looking for his appearance. Today he could come back. If he came back today, would you be ashamed? Or would he find you faithful in doing that which he's called you to do? To be working, to be faithful, to be warning people around you of the coming judgment of God, to be busy witnessing to people and sharing with them the truth of God's love, to be loving people despite the fact that they're not very lovable at times so that they can see how much God loves them, to be warning them of judgment. They cannot continue to live in a, in a manner that's displeasing to God. They can't walk in rejection of God. They can't be rebelling against God because there's a point of time for judgment. Now listen to me. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is a day appointed for this earth to go through judgment. But you know what? That's not as important as this. It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Let's put it on a personal level. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible says it is appointed for you to die once, no second chances, no coming back to get it right next time, to die once, and then comes judgment. You will be judged for whether you believed in God who said this about Jesus Christ. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That the only work that's pleasing to God is the work of believing God, believing whom God sent, that what God said is true. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through him. That's the message. And that's what the eminent return of Christ should do. Get us off our rear ends and get excited about warning people about the judgment of God and the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Is that what you're doing? If it is, then you won't be ashamed that it's coming. If you're not, then start doing it right. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We just praise you that we don't have to look forward to the wrath that's coming, that we, we will not be judged as the rest of the world who has rejected your sacrifice in Jesus Christ. God, help us to be people who share with those around us not only your love for them, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But you go on to say, but Jesus didn't come to judge the world at that time, for the world has already been judged. God, help us to be people that warn of the impending judgment of God. Father, we just pray for those who are hearing these words for the first time, that you would just convict their hearts of sin and righteousness and judgment, of sin that they are separated from God and they need a Savior, of righteousness and that Jesus Christ is righteous. And that if we believe in him, he'll impart his righteousness to, on our behalf. And of judgment, if we don't believe in him, that we'll be judged accordingly. That God is a righteous judge, that he's a just God. That, that he judges us according to the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. God, we just pray that as we wait for Christ to return for us, if we're still alive at that point, that we'll have a sense of urgency to get out and share with those around us of how much you love them and how much you care for them in the person of Christ. And we just... Thank you for these truths that we learn each time we pick up your word. We thank you for the knowledge that you give us, that we're not ignorant like the rest of the world, that indeed you have called us friends because you've shared it with us. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, just so you know what's